He wrote Genesis to show them who they are and where they came from. He wrote Genesis to show them that they didn't come from the cursed Cain, but through Seth. He wrote Genesis to show them that God has taken a special interest in them. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Fox Den. In this episode, I want to continue my survey of Genesis by looking at chapters 4 and 5. And to do this, let me quickly review chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 1 begins with God, and it shows that he existed before creation, which means he wasn't created. And in chapter 1, we see God's power where he creates all things by the power of his word. And we also see in chapter 1 that man is God's special creation. He was created in the image of God. And in chapter 2, Moses focuses in on the creation of Adam. And there in chapter 2, God issues a command to Adam, and that command was not to eat the forbidden fruit. Also in chapter 2, we see that God instituted marriage, which points to Christ and his church. Chapter 3 reveals the fall of mankind. Adam ate that forbidden fruit and suffered the consequences for his sin against the holy God. But chapter 3 also reveals God's grace. God promised and planned to defeat Satan. He is going to destroy him through the offspring of the woman. And that brings us to chapter 4. And it begins with the birth of Cain, the first son of Adam and Eve. And it's important to remind you that this happens after Adam sinned against God after the fall of mankind. So Cain was conceived and born in a sinful and corrupt world. And not only that, Cain himself was affected by Adam's sin. As I mentioned in my last episode, Adam was our representative in the Garden of Eden. He sinned on our behalf. His sin was our sin. His fall is our fall. This is why we live in a sinful world and why we continue to sin on a daily basis. Adam's sin has affected all of us. So, other than Jesus Christ, Adam and Eve are the only two humans who have experienced living in a sinless condition in a sinless world. Now, when Cain was born, Eve said in verse 1, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Michael Horton has noted that Eve thought she was giving birth to the offspring of the woman in Genesis 3.15. I mean, why wouldn't she? God promised an offspring and Eve has a son. However, we're going to see that Cain is not the offspring that will defeat Satan. And then we see the birth of Abel in verse 2. And Moses points out that Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. In verses 3 through 5, we see that Cain and Abel brought offerings to the Lord. God had regard for Abel's offering, but not Cain's. What does this mean when it says that God had regard for Abel's offering? Basically, God approved his offering or he received it. It was acceptable or favorable to God. So why did God have regard for Abel's offering but not Cain's? God regarding one offering over another is not based on the type of offering or the actions of the one presenting the offering. So what was it? Some have suggested that Cain simply gave from his crops while Abel gave a firstborn from his flock. After all, Moses makes a point that it's a firstborn, and the firstborn male is significant throughout the Old Testament. 
However, it seems the best answer here is that Abel's offering points to Christ. First, it was a firstborn from his flock. In Colossians 1.15, Paul refers to Christ as the firstborn of creation. What does he mean by this? Jesus is God, so he's not created. Also, Jesus was born in the middle of history. Others were born before him, so how could he be the firstborn of creation? Well, move forward three more verses and take a look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. It says that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Revelation 1.5 says the same thing. So, the firstborn refers to his resurrection. Second, the animal that Abel offered points to the sacrifice of Christ. And this is a common theme throughout the whole Old Testament. Fast forward several hundred years to the book of Exodus. In Exodus 12, God warned the Israelites of the impending plague, and he instituted the Passover. This final plague in Egypt was the event that preceded the Israelites leaving their slavery in Egypt. God instructed the Israelites to slaughter a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And then God would move throughout the land and kill the firstborn male of each household without blood on the doorpost. In other words, the blood of the lamb saved the people who put the blood on their doorposts. Fast forward to the New Testament and Paul refers to Jesus as the Passover lamb. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Those Passover lambs in Exodus pointed forward to the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. His blood saves us. Furthermore, the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. Once the Israelites left Egypt, God gave them laws to live as his people, and some of these laws were religious. These laws dictated the religious life of the Israelites and we find laws concerning the sacrifices in Leviticus. The burnt offering is found in Leviticus chapter 1, and the burnt offering required a bull with no blemish. The bull was then sacrificed. Do you think the people were forgiven by the blood of a bull? Of course not. We are forgiven by the blood of Christ, who is sinless and without blemish. So the burnt offering points forward to Jesus and his sacrifice. Now, coming back to Abel, it seems what pleased God was not that Abel offered an animal and Cain offered vegetation. There were offerings in Leviticus that didn't require an animal. For example, the grain offering found in Leviticus chapter 2. So, it seems what pleased God about Abel's sacrifice was that it pointed forward to Christ, the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15. Well, Cain wasn't pleased with God regarding Abel's offering, but not his. In fact, he was angry. And in verse 7, God warns Cain that sin waits to overcome him if he's not careful. But we see in verse 8 that Cain did not heed God's warning. He killed Abel. Now, what can we learn from this? Well, first, it reveals that Cain is not the promised offspring found in Genesis 3.15. Cain's sin aligns with Satan's character. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus called Satan a murderer. So Cain is not the one who would defeat Satan. He's on Satan's side. Second, Cain's sin reveals the corruption of his heart, which he inherited from Adam. However, Cain is not alone. We all inherit Adam's guilt and his sin nature. 
Paul tells us this in Romans 5.12. Sin entered through one man, and that one man is Adam. Now, there's a little detour I want to take here. I failed to mention this in my last episode, but notice again what God said in Genesis 3.15. The offspring of the woman will defeat Satan, not the offspring of man. Who fits this description? Jesus Christ. He is fully God and fully man. He was born of the Virgin Mary, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. God the Father is his father. Joseph is not. That means that though Jesus was fully human, he had no human father. Therefore, God said in Genesis 3.15 that the offspring of Eve, not Adam, will defeat Satan. This is completely consistent with who Jesus is. Now let's come back to Genesis chapter 4. God confronts Cain and he tells him that he is cursed from the ground. And this is the first time a man is cursed by God. In Genesis 3, God cursed the serpent and God cursed the ground, but he didn't curse Adam and Eve. Sure, they suffered the consequences for their sin, but God didn't curse them. In fact, take a look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. God blessed them. This is the opposite of cursing them. Said another way, God didn't curse them when they sinned because he blessed them when he created them. God, however, cursed Cain for killing Abel. The penalty for his actions was that the ground will no longer produce fruit for him and he will be a wanderer. Now, perhaps this seems like a minor penalty for someone guilty of sin. You think about what Cain's livelihood was. He was a worker of the ground. So because of his sin, he lost his livelihood. The ground will no longer produce for him. But there was something more going on here. Look at what Cain says in verse 14. God will drive him away, and from God's face, Cain will be hidden. He will be a fugitive and a wanderer. In studies in the book of Genesis, Robert Harbach states that God excommunicated him and cut him off from the sacraments in the church, the gathered people of God. Well, next we see that Cain was fearful that others would seek to kill him. Yet God assured him that there would be a greater penalty for the one who killed him. So Cain then went from the Lord's presence. Verses 17 to 22 show Cain's descendants. And in verses 23 and 24, Lamech, a descendant of Cain, bragged about killing a man and falsely presumed God's protection. Chapter 4 finishes with the birth of Adam and Eve's third son, Seth. Now, chapter 5 is a book of descendants from Adam to Noah. Now, there are several lists of descendants in the Old Testament, and it makes you wonder, why is this here? Why did they include these lists of people, these lists of descendants? Well, in this list, Moses is distinguishing between two lines. And he's showing the Israelites that they came from the line of Seth, not Cain. There's something else you'll notice about the descendants. Moses records the age of many of them, and they lived several hundred years. Certainly, the Israelites at the time when Moses wrote this had much shorter lifespans. They likely would have been just as surprised by the long lifespans as we are. Are these long lives fiction? No, they lived much longer back then. Remember, they lived in a world prior to the flood. The environment was likely different at that time, and it may have been more conducive to longer life. 
Now, another thing to notice here is the effects of sin. Though they lived long lives, they died, with the exception of one man. Take a look at Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. Here we see Enoch, and he lived for 365 years, yet we don't see his death. Verse 24 says that he walked with God and God took him. There's no record of his death like there is with the other men recorded. Chapter 5 ends with Noah, and he is the next main character in this story. And Moses gave us a hint of what is to come in the following chapters. Look at verses 28 and 29. This one will bring us relief. This is more apparent in chapters 6 through 9, but Noah points forward to Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that Noah is a mystical character, a fictional character that points to Christ. He is a real historic person who survived a real catastrophic event. Yet he and this event point forward to Christ and what he's doing for us. In him, we will be rescued from the impending judgment of God. So the end of chapter 5 sets the stage for hope in a global cataclysmic event. So as we conclude our review of the first five chapters, keep in mind what Moses is doing. He wrote Genesis to show the power of God. He wrote Genesis to show the Israelites that man is God's special creation. He wrote Genesis to show them why they're in the circumstances they were in. He wrote Genesis to show them that God planned to defeat Satan. He wrote Genesis to show them who they are and where they came from. He wrote Genesis to show them that they didn't come from the cursed Cain, but through Seth. He wrote Genesis to show them that God has taken a special interest in them. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, faith comes by hearing.